If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. By subscribing, you will get early access and free downloads. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. Hello. This is, hello. This is, this is Ellen Brown coming on to Truth Jihad Radio right at the beginning of the show. Hey, hey, welcome, Ellen. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well. So let's clue in the listeners. This is the, uh, what is it, 16th year or something like that of this radio show. And uh, we do try to bring on the best sources of alternative information. Occasionally some people I disagree with to fight with. And uh, we try to draw attention to the most important issues that the mainstream isn't covering properly. Well, Ellen, uh, you have just published uh, a really interesting and potentially important article. I hope it's not as portentous as it seems about the upcoming food emergency. You're suggesting that there may be a war on our food supply. Our food system seem to be under attack with supposedly accidental fires. Uh, diesel supply, uh, prices through the roof. The farmers can't get supplies. They're going out of business. There are cyber attacks on agricultural companies, mass cattle die-offs, etc., etc., etc. And of course, this orchestrated war in Ukraine that's taken a lot of food off the global table. And, uh, like me, you're actually suspicious about this stuff. <laughs> so, hey, where, where to start? Yeah, so we have many crises going on at once. We've got inflation, of course, price inflation, which uh, is being thrown at in the Fed's lap, lap, but they can't do anything about it, really. I mean, raising interest rates is going to just make it worse. Um, and we've got – but so price inflation is really about the supply chain crises, uh, the, like you say, the war in Ukraine, um, Political changes, all kinds of <laughs> um, the, the uh, truckers can't get diesel, and so they're liable to stop delivering to grocery stores. There's the 10,000 cattle that died in Kansas, which is highly suspicious. The farmers say they would not have died from heat, that, and they certainly wouldn't have died all at once. You know, sometimes old, sickly cows do die from heat, but they don't just all drop over drop over at once so it looks like somebody poisoned the water supply or something like that well at least um, at least they didn't lift them all up into the air and carry them a great distance and then drop them uh and mutilate them uh, as uh, some of the ufos have allegedly done so it's it's not that bad <laughs> ah good point <laughs> Yeah. But that could have been it. I mean, who knows? We don't know. Yeah, yeah. The cattle I mean, mutilations I, yeah. issue is one of the weirder UFO issues, but we probably should just stick with the uh, 10,000 cattle mass die-off story for now. Right. So whatever is happening, our food supply is 
is shrinking radically. And there are a lot of people that are highly suspicious about it. In um, July of 2020, the um, Rockefeller Foundation published, an, or they brought together a bunch of experts, and then they published, um, um, I don't remember what it's called, anyway, a memorandum that was called uh, Reset the Table, Meeting the Moment to Transform the U.S. Food System. So, I mean, this was, how did they know that there was going to be a food crisis? That's what they said said that we've got the biggest food crisis ever coming down the pipe. But we didn't have a food crisis then. I mean, we don't we were only in lockdowns for like 2 months. Um and it was right after the uh World Economic Forum came out with their uh great reset, all highly suspicious. So so this paper was saying it's an opportunity, you know, of course they always call it crisis an opportunity. It looks a lot like that problem crisis a problem <laughs> response solution thing where they create the problem and then the pro- they create a food crisis then the problem or the the response is um starvation and then the solution is they put everybody on um it, it used to be health passports but that hasn't succeeded in capturing the whole world as intended and so now it's um Food passports is the next thing, and apparently Iran already has these food passports because they have people starving in the streets, so they're all lined up with their food passports. But you know that's going to be connected to their credit scores. I mean, that's what people are worried about is a social credit score system like like in China where they can turn you off as a, turn off your money or turn off your food as a political dissident, you know, or going into your social media so, um, or your email or whatever. I mean, I keep get, are you, do you get these things across your email that says, say, do you want to continue <laughs> receiving emails from this person whenever, you know, you get an email that has any sort of tinge of conspiracy in it? Anyway, they're reading our emails now, which is quite alarming yeah I, I guess theoretically when you sign up for google and yahoo email they might have there's something in the small print that gives them the right to spy on you and likewise pretty much everything we do now in cyberspace has somebody claiming the right to spy on us and then to try to use what we say to sell us stuff and who knows whether they're selling it to the government I mean, they're just trying to make money so anybody could buy it and so governments can buy that information so that means the government can be indirectly spying on you and it's all supposedly perfectly legal it's completely insane if you ask me but so so ellen this food passport concept that sounds like a kind of updated version of the ration book coupons that they had back in world war ii i've heard stories from my mother about how when she was a little girl she got sick and needed extra iron, and they had a pretty limited amount of meat they could get with their coupons, and so her four big sisters were a little bit jealous that she got most of the meat for a couple of weeks while she was recovering, Uh, and uh, I've I've heard stories about these coupons from my other uh, grandparents' side as well. So what would be the difference between these kinds of wartime food coupons and a food passport? Uh Well, that that certainly is a concern, but today it can all be hooked up to the internet and that's what this report was talking about it's a chance to um ex- extend the this whole cyber 
universe that's being created where everything has a barcode, <laughs> including us, if we, I mean, depends on how conspiratorial you want to get, but hey, they haven't know, chipped me here. Vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> well, through your vaccine, allegedly. Um, but anyway, certainly animals are barcoded now. You know, you get the little tag on the ear, the cows and all that. And they want to barcode plants and species, and they're turning insects into proteins. So when th- that paper also said that um, they they learned from from this crisis, pandemic, which had only just started then, that um, food was critical to health, that it was the obese people who were getting sick or the or the people who had, um, you know, other forms of debilities. But for years, um, alternative people have been saying food is important and they don't even teach nutrition in uh, in medical school. But all of a sudden they're coming around and saying food is a big issue and that the doctors could write a prescription for food just as easily as they write a prescription. Well, well for, yeah, and, uh, and that, that's where it gets crazy. I mean, I'm saying people need better nutrition makes sense, but having doctors, you have to have doctors prescribe produce for people to eat produce. That's bizarre. Right. And what, it, and what it sounds like is uh, you're eating too much, you know, too much meat for you. So we're going to cut down on your meat and you can have insect protein protein for your which is you know there's there's a world economic forum paper on how insect protein is underrated and what a good thing it is it's probably a good way to lose weight is to go on an insect protein diet well i don't think i would eat very much you wouldn't be obese right (laughs) if you eat the diet they're prescribing but so it, that all sounds conspiracy would have sounded conspiratorial until we saw that um in Canada when the truckers went on strike people the truckers got their um money you know their bank accounts cut off and even people that sent money to the truckers uh, some you know or some some groups got into trouble or got their money cut off so clearly they they have global control, or that's the idea, is to have global control. And um, political dissidents notoriously are um, eliminated by whatever um, political group is in power, and that that is a concern. I mean, how do how do we pr- protest this when there's a global cyber net of connected to everything? And then, you know, you've probably seen all this stuff about uh, the metaverse and that the whole idea is to get us hooked into the metaverse so that so that we don't have to go anywhere. You can just put on your goggles and you feel like you're traveling and you stay at home and your insect protein gets delivered to you, that sort of thing. It starts to sound like the Matrix, doesn't it? (laughs) It is the Matrix. That's what they're setting up, yeah. Yeah, so, so all, all anyway, those, tube, those the tubes they stick in you are, are feeding you insect protein. Say it again. The, the tubes in the Matrix, right? People are like in a test tube with all these tubes stuck into their bodies. <laughs> and I, I wondered about those. Apparently, you know, they must be pumping in the insect protein and then pumping out the energy. Hmm. Yeah, good point. So that's what people are concerned about. And there's a big push then to go local, grow your own food and um, escape the big Wall Street money system. Of course, we had Occupy Wall Street that started that and said, pull your money out of the big banks. 
put them in the little banks. Um, but I, there are also groups working on uh, community currencies or cryptocurrencies that could actually fund local communities in the same way that banks make loans. In other words, create money on their books or create crypto coins or coins of some sort and then use those um, a, a form of community currency. Cities could issue their own community currencies. This has been done historically, like in the Depression, cities um, would issue community currencies. But the problem is that People don't necessarily want to take, you know, it's hard to get the merchants to take them, particularly if it's a private community currency, because they don't know where they can spend it. But if it's backed by something, then they'll take it. So the new idea is to have it actually backed by food. So it's like an advance against um, the, the future crops. So you're giving the farmer or the gardener or the garden co-op group, your local co-op group, you're giving them money. Or, I mean, I prefer using dollars, but I know there are a lot of people that want to make the whole thing be <laughs> be independent of the dollar system. I don't think dollars are going away. I think they're actually, I mean, obviously the U.S. dollar is getting stronger, not weaker right now for other very interesting re reasons having to do with the euro dollar system, but I won't go into that. But anyway, I think the dollar is going to be around for a long time. But the idea would be that you would pay money in something, let's say dollars, um, to the farmer who needs to buy seed and different things for his crops. And so it would be backed by what he's going to produce in six months. So it's really basically a, a forward contract or a futures contract against his future productivity. So right now the preppers and <laughs> survivalists, you know, are all saying you gotta stuck up stuck up with all this food. But how much produce can you keep in your refrigerator? It's just not gonna not gonna stay fresh for very long. But if you had this coupon that you could cash in in six months uh for the produce that is just now coming out of the ground, that would be great. So they they're already doing that on a you know, a big industrial level, like Santander is a big banking conglomerate in uh, Europe, and they're funding these um, grain-backed cryptocurrencies. So you've got like tons of grain in a in a silo, and that's that's the backing for this currency. But we're not going to have tons of grain in a silo for our little city, but we could just do it against the produce that's produced locally. So I think that's a great idea. But then ideally, <laughs> what would be great is if we could, and there are people working on this, setting up an entire system of these mutual exchange systems where you're basically getting um, credit for some product you have and then you spend your credits on somebody else's product. I mean, that's already happening globally and they've already hooked them up so that they can trade with each other globally and then you need some standard by which you measure the the value of the currency. But you could, in theory, I'm just picturing um, cities or towns having their own um, some form of something that they produce that could back their, so they can issue their own currency. States can't issue their currency own currencies because it's in the constitution that um you know that uh, states are not supposed to issue bills of credit and that's considered to mean is 
paper money like the um like the colonies were doing but state cities can and have historically particularly in times of depression so a city could be producing something like um well let's see um they could be producing fiber optic broadband. I know a group that's really interested in that. I mean, some cities do do their own fiber optic, or they could be doing solar dollars for energy that they produce. Or um, there's a book called Alcohol Can Be a Gas that um, he describes how you could, you can a local community could have its own still and be burning, turning... Um, not corn because you don't want to use food, but turning agricultural waste like weeds and cattails and things that don't have any agricultural use, that you can turn those into ethanol. So then you've got your own form of, you could use it for heating, et cetera. You could use it to drive your car. You need to do some sort of converter on that car. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it can be done and it's being done somewhere, I think Brazil or some such place. Anyway, all these things are possibilities for having local independent communities that are trading locally, but of course they're not going to have all the supplies they need. They need to have a way to also trade with other communities, and there are systems that can do this, mutual credit systems basically, and um, there's also a bill in Congress right now for eCash, which is an alternative to um, central bank digital currencies, which everybody's afraid of just because they're afraid of the central bank being able to control control your account, you know, and cut you off for um, your bad social credit score or whatever. But these um, eCash would actually be act like cash, so it's electronic. But you can put two phones together and transfer it, and uh, it's not hooked up to a central, or it's not centralized. There's no back door to the central government. Uh, they're, they're still apparently working on the on the um, on the whatever the <laughs> you know the the techie part of that. I don't think they have that down yet, but supposedly that can be done, and I think that is a better idea. It'd be issued by the Treasury, so essentially we'd be going back to the American system of um, government-issued money and government-issued credit. Another thing I think is a great idea is the National Infrastructure Bank. I've done a number of presentations for the National Infrastructure Bank Coalition on this is how we got out of the Great Depression, was with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which um, issued credit and funded any sort of business that paid back, you know, farms or anything that would be able to pay back loans. They made quite small loans, and but over the course of 25 years, they rebuilt the country, funded America's participation in World War II, and turned a profit for all that. And of course, uh, the first and second U.S. banks were the were the original models. I think uh, <laughs> I think that Alexander Hamilton and um, Biddle, who was the head of the second U.S. bank, they both been maligned historically unjustly. I think. I mean, they, they both actually had great models, and it was all about productivity. So we issued the money as credit. So just like banks do today, the Bank of England has said that um, virtually all of our circulating 
money, what we call money currency, is uh, created by banks when they make loans. So they issue it just by writing it into one side of their balance sheet, and they write it into your checkbook, and then you can write a check on it. And of course, originally, they actually issued it as bank notes, and then during the Civil War or during that period uh, under President Lincoln, um, the National Bank Acts were um, fined the local banks for 10% on their printed uh, dollars and or their printed currencies, so their printed banknotes. So they quit printing them and started just writing it in your checkbook. So you were basically <laughs> you were writing the dollar, you were writing the banknote on their checkbook. So you were it was your loan. You were or in other words, banks can only create money in combination with the borrower. So it's really the borrower is just backing your credit. But you can't walk into a grocery store and write out an IOU and get the, the grocery store to credit to accept it, to buy, give you groceries for it. But you can write out the bank's IOU, which is, you know, your check on your checkbook, and, the, and they'll take it. So anyway, that's the system we've had for hundreds of years. And uh, we could do that and should do that, I think, with through a national infrastructure bank. It's what China does, and that's how they built all this high-speed rail. I mean, they're just running circles around us for infrastructure. And it's, um, you know, what Germany has a, a strong national infrastructure bank, and uh, they have in all all those in both those cases they have a strong network of local banks that um through which you know the local bank knows the the local community they know the borrowers and so you need that somebody boots on the ground so what the vision i have <laughs> i i don't have this totally all down but um would be to have a banking system quite like our current banking system except that Rather than being um, profit-driven, private profit-driven, it would be public, public utility-driven, or it would be mandated to serve the public interest. And so you would have loans at cost, meaning the cost of the the bank itself. Nobody's turning a profit except the community itself. Of course, will benefit, and that's the whole idea. So you'd have boots on the ground type local banks that would be they could be making loans backed by food, that type of thing, or they could be issuing uh, local city currency backed by one of those things, solar dollars or fiber optic broadband or eth ethanol fuel from a still, something like that. Um, and then this is how they would expand, you know, <laughs> circulation in the community because it's a bank there is an idea. In fact, I think I started this idea because I wrote about it in Web of Debt in 2007 that we could have trillion-dollar coins. You know, the government could just issue the money directly. It's too bad you, can, you can't get a royalty on that if they, when they start coining the trillion-dollar coins. <laughs> even if you could get just like, you know, 1%, you'd be doing pretty well. <laughs> well, it was really a, somebody – you know, it was an idea from somebody in the 80s, and I, he said we needed billion dollar, or we could issue billion dollar coins. So you dollar. raised him. You raised him to a trillion. Yeah, That's I raised him to a trillion. And then I said that on an interview, and the guy that did the platinum coin idea, he said. 
somewhere that he heard me say that in an interview, and that's where he got the idea. So that's why. <laughs> but anyway, I think that would be a great idea. But the problem is, A, it wouldn't happen today because everybody's so freaked out about inflation, and they think if you just allow the Treasury to print money that it's almost by definition going to be inflationary and drive prices up. I mean, I would dispute that, but it's very hard to get Congress to change whatever 50 years of um, thinking or ever since we had stagflation in the 70s. Um, But so that's why it needs to be done as a bank because the credit goes out and then it gets paid back. But ideally, you you do it. You use that credit for productive purposes. In other words, not for speculative purposes. It doesn't go into speculative whatever cryptocurrencies or gambling or um, all those things that banks engage in that are highly highly questionable. But it goes specifically into infrastructure and things that serve the community or local community loans for local businesses to prop up the business. And the money comes back, so it's a closed circuit, and therefore it's not inflationary. And you keep the interest rate. You have to have some interest because you've got to cover cover your costs, but that's that's it. It's as low as interest can go and still make the system work. Interesting. Well, just for the sake of argument, I'm wondering if there could ever be a totally non-debt money system in which, uh, well, it, the Islamic uh, ideal, of course, is a system with no lending of interest whatsoever, which is considered you know, usury, and it's haram or absolutely forbidden, and uh, the Muslims are all supposed to be at war with usury for all eternity. Um, so that leads to the question, well, how can you have loans if there's, if there's no interest to, to make it worthwhile or to even cover the costs? And one possible answer would be that, as I understand this Islamic system, it's based on commodity currency, so there's basically no debt, or if there's re- debt is not the way the currency is being created. Rather, it's uh, a value-based currency system, uh, gold and silver, of course, being the standard kinds of materials you know, behind the units, the dirham and the dinar. And uh, then the question is, of course, well, what about the fact that some people accumulate a lot more money than others, and then somebody without money needs some to start a business, right? That's the excuse for lending and typically lending at interest. In the Islamic system, there is a very strong injunction to charity. Not only do people pay a 2.5% wealth tax every year, and that wealth is on every bit of their income above what is necessary to sustain an average person, plus all of their net wealth, 2.5% a year. And there's a very strong injunction to give voluntary charity, so, and and loans are considered a part a, a sort of voluntary charity, uh, and of course you're not allowed to ask for any interest whatsoever. So, in a society where people were actually uh, trying to develop spiritually, and that was the main focus of life, and they were inculcated in this idea of you you know if you have more than you need, you should be giving it away one way or another then you wouldn't really need this sort of super rationalized system that uses debt. One way or another, a debt-based system is always going to be giving power to the creditors, right? And especially a usury system. That's uh, So So I'm just wondering why we couldn't uh, get, you know, your, your book, Web of Debt, 
points out, the cur- our whole system is all based on debt. Well, what if we just completely eliminated that and had a system based on positive money? Why couldn't that happen? Okay, let's think that through. I mean, that's certainly... I've promoted something similar that you know similar to that, but so just issue the money, build the infrastructure, and then that will that so you've got GDP that's going to go up along with the money supply, and therefore it shouldn't be inflationary. That should work. Um, but now, if you just issue the money for, I mean, that would work for infrastructure, which are public things, you know. You, you, the Congress, have decided that we need water, we need, you know, electricity, all those different things, and so build those utilities. But for small businesses, local businesses, how do you – not everybody has that <laughs> religious bent, you know. Not everybody is going – people will take advantage of the system, in other words. If they can get free money, obviously they're going to take advantage of the system. Not everybody, but some people. And we haven't eliminated greed from the from the human mentality. I mean, maybe maybe that will happen, but it's not there yet. I mean, people aren't yet convinced that – I mean, people aren't even convinced that there's a life beyond this life. And so – well, of course, some, some are and some aren't. <laughs> but, but yeah, historically, I know, but not. Yeah. But in, say in it the, again. In, well, in the past, um, there's at least one interpretation of anthropology uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's associated to some extent with people like Marshall Salins, but it doesn't depend on him. That uh, would suggest that throughout most of human history, uh, people had these kind of strictures against accumulation. They made sure that nobody accumulated enough to uh, destroy the egalitarianism of the society. And the potlatch culture of the northern northwestern Indians was a good example of that, in which if somebody started accumulating more than others, they were obliged to throw a potlatch party and basically give everything away. And if you withheld even a penny, people would... Uh, be disgusted with you, and you'd basically, you know, never dare show your face again. And and that ethos has been universal in traditional uh, sort of pre-agricultural, pre-hierarchical societies. And indeed, the emergence of hierarchical society, which is just in the last blink of an eye historically, was based on destroying that. That is, as soon as you know, some psychopaths figured out how to destroy the cultural. Uh, prohibition on accumulation. They accumulated, they used their accumulation to pay uh, the thugs to go out and tax, meaning rob the peasants, and then they, they used all that grain and goods that they stole from the peasants to hire even more thugs to do it next year and then to go invade somebody else's land and do it on a bigger scale, and pretty soon you had so-called civilization. So uh, actually, humanity has a much longer history of relative egalitarianism and absolutely really no meaningful accumulation than it does of so-called civilization with its accumulation and hierarchy. So it shouldn't really be that hard to get back to primordial human nature, as the Quran suggests, as Islam suggests, and reestablish a, a potlatch society. And that's what Islam really is is saying, is that it's, it's a potlatch society. Anybody who starts accumulating had better give it away, or you're in trouble, or we're going to shun you. And that has worked historically in a lot of different Islamic times and places, to some extent at least. 
Okay, so you're not in trouble after death, <laughs> you're in trouble now. Both, yeah, so both. I mean, just, just like all these other serious crimes and sins, many of which are not punished in secular societies, but yeah, we punish them in this life too. <laughs> you're going to get punished mm-hmm. in both this life and the next when you commit certain kinds of sins. Yeah. Well, it's just would be hard to change the mentality of, I mean, you can't go to Congress and present that. They're just not going <laughs> to I don't for think it. this Congress would, would vote for my proposal unanimously, I'm afraid. No, but maybe, I mean, what I might envision, <laughs> assuming we're actually, you know, on the cusp of the Aquarian age or whatever the Hindus say that we're moving into the golden age and there's like a lifting of consciousness. And I mean, if people really knew or believed are we convinced if, if science would even accept that there's life after death and that what you do in this life actually affects what your next life is going to be or what happens after death, something like that. If people absolutely believed that, then they would, on a personal level, you know, go go the extra mile to be helpful and share and all that sort of stuff. Maybe that's but why we, we need Jesus to come back. And uh, show people like directly uh, that this is in fact the case. Uh huh. How he's going to do that, I'm not <laughs> sure, but uh... yeah. And would people even then be convinced? I mean, they might call it a psyop of some sort. <laughs> oh no! So the conspiracy theorists will be the last atheists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I mean, for some reason, I. I mean, you've got religion. Uh, for some reason, I'm. I'm actually an optimist. I think all that's going to happen, but I'm not exactly sure how. But I do feel sort of this obligation to do my best to help structure something that actually works because I'm sort of in a position to, I mean, at least I can write, you know, and throw ideas out there and they do seem to get picked up. So, Right. Well, you know, and speaking of, of, of the ideas that you've raised in this latest article and you just mentioned earlier, uh, the eCash uh, strikes me as, as really interesting because the way you described it, it sounds like they may have solved or are on, on the road to solving the technical problem of uh, creating something like Bitcoin that's basically theoretically untraceable because, the, you know, as you said, the issue with the central bank currencies is the central bank that issues those currencies is tracing them and still controlling them as they're passing from hand to hand and being spent from one party to another. And we certainly don't want that. But if they've technologically solved this problem of making something that really would be like cash, that is, it's it's totally secure, you know, you spend it to me, I spend it to somebody else, and no central bank or no nobody else sees that you're giving it to me, that I'm giving it to someone else, right? And and I, I from what I understand, that may not even be the case with the cryptocurrencies. They're supposed to be uh, crypto and the equivalent of digital cash, but there have been indications that they're actually traceable to some extent under some circumstances and there have been right. some busts. Apparently there's yeah. a back door even in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um so I've Yeah. So so so, so is, is digital cash yeah. really going to work? Well that that's the question. Can it be set up in a way that's totally anonymous? But it does seem to me that we need to move beyond paper just because uh even if you have your local currency you have there are things you're going to have to be able to get that are on the other side of the world, and somehow you have to um, hook up all these systems so that, I mean, digital is just obviously the the new age, or you know, it's the money of 
the modern age. Right. And, and one so much more, more efficient right. if we can eliminate the hazards of it. Right. And, and what about the, the argument that we could actually go back to commodity currencies? I and mean, you mentioned, of course, certain ways of de- doing decentralized commodity currencies by having different local uh, jurisdictions, towns, cities, and so on, issue currencies backed by whatever they were producing. And that makes sense. And, and maybe that could happen to some extent at a national level, too, where, for instance, Russia is now going to a uh, precious metals and, uh, and other minerals-backed currency, supposedly. And, and, and that leads me to the next question, sort of a, the devil's advocate question here, uh, uh, you know, questioning your, your approach to monetary reform, which actually I find reasonably convincing. But just for the heck of it, I'm throwing out this question of, well, why couldn't we go back to gold and silver? And, and the standard answer, which is that there isn't enough gold and silver in the world, makes no sense at all to me because you just simply value it higher. You know, you, you get uh, if gold, you know, whatever it takes to make sure that the supply of gold that's out there is enough to cover the actual goods and services in the world. Well, that becomes the value of gold and the value of silver in relation to it. And yeah, obviously it's going to be really expensive, but why not? Well, but what's the difference? I mean, if you, I've thought of that too, that you could put like a speck of gold dust (laughs) in your paper currency or something or in your, in your coin and it's held in the middle there. But, um, what's the difference between that and just a paper dollar that it's got that value because you said so? I mean, it's it's redeemable though. Why, Why shouldn't the paper dollar be redeemable for gold or silver just like they always were? up until the 30s. Well, because for that, there's not enough gold. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're, that was the problem, that they tried to, re, that, uh, you know, France pulled their money out, to pull their gold out. That was the pro, That was the main trigger, was when France pulled all their all their gold out, and then the U.K. threatened to do it in 19, whatever right, it but was. But see, this is what this is, this is all about the, you know, the money managers printing too much green paper. They're printing more paper than they have gold, which has been the problem all along. Why not just have uh, paper, the paper has to be equivalent to X amount of gold. And, and then you get arrested for counterfeiting if you put out paper, more paper than you have gold to back it. Well, but what, it's, it's valued at a certain amount of gold but what good is it unless you can cash it in i mean plus you can't eat gold where you can eat food i mean i'd rather be able to cash my money in for food or for any other product that i think that's the good of a mutual or uh, you know one of these mutual credit exchange systems is that any product that you produce you can issue a, a coin against it, or however you want to describe it, you can issue a, a note, a promissory note against it, and say you'll produce that thing, and then uh, you sell your notes, and that helps you create the things, and then you sell it to someone else, and etc. Right, that, that's true, and and of course, what they're talking about with these ideas of currency reform in a post-dollar environment would be some kind of international standard that included a so-called basket of currencies backed by a sort of basket of commodities. Um, do, you, do you see the world moving in that direction? Uh, well, certainly half the world. <laughs> the China, Russia, India, that part of the world. Um, that's what they're planning is a 
basket of currencies and uh, commodities, like you say. Which, but still, they're it's still you're using that currency. That's the way it used to be that they would actually ship the gold from one country to another, you know, to clear to clear the account. So you've got all these accounts flowing back and forth all day. So there's not that much gold that you have to ship, but still there's some balance owing, and you were supposed to actually ship that ship that across country lines somehow. And, and why not? I mean that that whole system worked pretty well. You know, and if if we read people like Michael Hudson, uh, it kind of sounds like the reason that that stopped was because the U.S. had so much power that it said. You know, we're not going to play by those rules anymore. Up until today, and today being like, what, 1973 or whatever it was, uh, every time a country reached that point where, you know, it, it couldn't keep printing paper uh, and and then get providing gold in return for it, uh, then it, it would have to send away its gold reserves. You know, the U.S. did that to the British right at the beginning of World War II and basically stole all their gold reserves. But because of this immense American power, they basically stiffed the world and stiff the French and so on. And and that was unjust. That was a swindle. And there's no reason that should have happened. And basically we should be, and by all, they, as soon as people awaken to that swindle, which they're gradually doing, and, and it will be coming uh, along with the West's military defeat in Ukraine and maybe elsewhere, maybe Taiwan, Taiwan and elsewhere, that at that point uh, we'll go back probably to a world where indeed nations will ship gold uh, abroad based on, on their relative currency values. Um, and if not, why, why won't that happen? Well, that's certainly the, um, was the idea of the original Bretton Woods thing was that, um, you would have balance of payments and you would clear the balance, you know, by actually shipping products. So it wouldn't, doesn't seem to me it would have to be gold or silver or, currencies it could be anything i mean it's just clearing your debts to other countries right Mm -hmm. but then how do you enforce that and what if they don't do it what if they don't have it to pay Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, i agree in general i mean i i do think i think it's good that russia or you know glasgow has come up with this other system it sounds more um stable than what we've got right now the, apparently, the whole what actually replaced the dollar and the Bretton Woods system was the euro dollar system, where banks globally um, just issue the money on their books. There's no reserves. They're, the central banks are not in control. That's why the Fed can't really control, you know, the amount of money in the system because banks create this credit. Um, and trade it with each other and then, you know, clear their books. But it's huge amounts of money are created in that way, and then they speculate with it, and that's how they do all their derivatives, et cetera. So there's this whole hidden system, shadow shadow banking, that uh, is the real, <laughs> the real uh, exchange system, but it's called dollars, and that's why the, there's a shortage of dollars and for that system, you know, for the repo market, et cetera, for clearing balances. And so that's why the dollar is not going away anytime soon. I'm not sure that it's, 
It seems to me the corruption in the system is that it's hidden. If everybody could see exactly what was happening, it's not a bad system that you just um, trade credits and uh, only clear when there's a when there's a balance owing. Like at the end of the day or the end of the month or two, I think every two weeks when we used to actually have a um, a reserve requirement, you were supposed to clear it every two weeks. And you did that by, if you didn't have the reserves, meaning the deposits, then you would borrow from the Fed or borrow from the repo market or borrow from another bank or something. But you had two two weeks to clear it. So if you, if you had a certain time period, that's the way um, I think, the original Breton or Keynes, the Keynesian system was set, supposed to work, but of course we didn't do that. It was the Bancor, I guess, that was supposed to be the. Um, I'm not. My memory is not what it once was. But anyway, it seems to me that all that is a good, not a bad system. What's bad is that it's secret. It's manipulated. That the big banks and their customers get first access to all this uh, money created on the books and therefore they are able to scoop up all the all the other assets and get richer and richer. I mean, there's obviously something totally off balance when you have people that are worth close to a trillion dollars or you have entities that are worth multiple trillions of dollars like BlackRock. There's something wrong with this system, but we can't really see what's going on and that's the real problem. If you if you had total transparency, total accountability, the whole idea of banks creating money on their books, they're really just creating credit. And I think I mean <laughs> the the Muslim system notwithstanding, it seems to me that interest isn't a bad thing to cover your costs because you're you're gonna have some cost of borrowing the liquidity if you borrow. You're gonna have some defaults and you've gotta cover the defaults if you're gonna balance all the books and you've gotta pay your workers. And of course we're with our public banking system we're always trying to figure out where to get the money to even set up these banks and you can't get a ceo a bank ceo cheaply i mean if if you want a good ceo they expect to be paid a lot of money and if they're going to be a trained you know person who knows what they're doing you're probably going to have to pay them a fair amount of money so how do you cover that cost that's not that's not actually speculative interest to the investors that's um that's your cost of uh, doing credit, you know, making loans. Mm-hmm. So what you're describing is uh, basically the, the ideal, or at least a better system, would be just making the current system public and transparent. Right, accountable to the public, and so that everybody can see where the money's gone, and uh, where it came from, and what what we're, you know, so that we can track it well. So in that sense, you know, there's something to be said for this whole idea of putting everything on the Internet. (laughs) I mean, I think the Internet is one of the greatest things that ever happened in my life, just in terms of education and knowledge, because it used to be so cumbersome to go to the library and try to find information. As a writer, it was hard to find the things I needed for footnotes and now you can just sit at home and it all just pops up. I mean, that's great. And if you could track money in the same way, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
there, you might end up with the same kind of problem we have in the information world of the uh, what the the bad money crowding out the good in terms of you know the way that they try to hide secrets now is not so much by actually hiding them but just by pumping out the fire hose of information of various qualities that swamps everybody uh, and likewise you know, trying to sit down and trace you know what's really going on financially is is probably a, pr- mm-hmm. a very difficult task. And, uh, you know, the people who are trying to conceal their tracks, uh, are always going to have that, that motive and be able to hire the experts who are, who are good at that sort of thing. So it's in and of itself, I think the, the internet may, may not have really be solving the problem, but maybe there's a way to structure it. Everybody's always hoping that there'll be a, a new algorithm or something that will, that will fix things. And, you know, Bitcoin was supposed to do that. And it's, you know, it's definitely done something interesting. Uh, well, you know, getting back to the, issue we started with, which was the food shortages. Um, Dan recently, uh, I think he's listening, he's responded, where I live, there's plenty of food in the grocery stores. Prices are higher, but people are still going about their business. So I guess we're not experiencing famine yet. And I'd say, yeah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> uh, but what we're looking at here, Ellen, is actually problems down the line. So how far down the line? Well, um, apparently there's some... Uh, uh, some additive in diesel I don't know you know I'm not a chemist obviously and I don't know all this stuff but there's some additive that that can't be had now and therefore diesel is going to be in very short supply and therefore the truckers the small truckers are going bankrupt because I mean they're starting to do that now but I'm I saw somewhere that you know in a couple of months where they're not going to be able to get diesel at all so could be short term who knows i mean certainly other countries are having riots food riots already yeah sri lanka looks like it's in really bad shape right now yeah so we could all be heading in that direction but it's it's government policy that have caused all these problems it's not you know it's not i well i'm not i'm not a uh, global warming person myself i mean it's not because the world is burning up in fact there's an argument that the world that we're going into a global cooling system um, cycle and that therefore we're going to need heat even more than before so okay that's another thing that information is that's one problem with all this information is you've got all these alleged experts that say x and then uh most people just read the headlines and they say oh that's that's settled, you know, the, the the science is settled, the experts agree, but the experts don't agree. You, if you look at it, there are experts that say the opposite, that make, you know, I mean, not just on global warming, but on numerous issues. So even though we're bombarded with information, we don't really know what the true information is. Oh, well, anyway, right. it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, we've <laughs> certainly seen that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, We've seen that a lot of issues, including the the vaccine issue, where the mainstream is now kind of admitting, it seems, backhandedly, that these vaccines are not working well, that the boosters have basically failed. And they can't come right out and say that. Like I I saw an article in the Washington Post today that somebody wrote in and asked, well, why aren't they setting up a regime to boost everybody every, say, three months? 
And the answer was this is blah, 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 blah. It couldn't get, you know, and then finally they get to the real point, which is that, well, there, there's, there's actually concern about original antigenic sin, meaning that the people who've been vaxxed too much actually will be worse off in terms of experiencing bad COVID outcomes. And that it appears that the boosters work for a shorter and shorter period each time you get boosted. So, and, and this is all disguised in the middle of a bunch of blah, 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 uh, about, well, uh, a lot of people haven't even had their first booster yet. yet. Well, what, who cares about that? If it, if it's safe and effective, you should just give it every three months to anybody who wants it, right? Um, but you have to parse through that article to realize that they're basically admitting that boosters don't work. <laughs> uh, but that's certainly yeah, not what which- they've been telling us for years now. Yeah, well, which uh, we skeptics knew a couple of years ago, but uh, that information is only only now getting out. Yeah, so but that's good at least. It's, I mean, that's why I think there is going to be an sort of a an awakening. You know, that there's all this, all these many frauds that we've that have been kept from us for for a long time are now coming to the fore. We're we're realizing that that wasn't true that what we've been there our whole history maybe isn't true or the way it's been characterized isn't true and so yeah my listeners to the show certainly have, yeah. <laughs> know that only uh too well well we only have a couple, <laughs> a couple of minutes here ellen uh so what, what should regular folks be doing about this if anything uh, planting a garden or what well yes if 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 you've got the facilities, I personally don't have any place I can put a garden. I wish I did. I'm thinking about buying, getting those great big bags, you know, full of dirt that you can plant things in. But I don't know how far those go. Anyway, yeah, and or a food co-op if you have some sort of um, local farming community that you can tap into, that would be great. And I don't know. To me, it's just important to know what's going on you know to be really informed on everything i i certainly wouldn't even try to give investment advice <laughs> okay well we don't give investment advice here on truth you had radio either uh so <laughs> that's that's good uh and if, if i try to give investment advice people would come and look at my lifestyle which does consist of of growing a lot of food and cutting my own firewood and not making very much money. And they would say, uh, you know, what's this guy? If, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich? Um, whereas I'm often telling the, uh, powers that be, if you're so rich, why ain't you smart? And, uh, yeah, here we are. you are rich. <laughs> you're rich. I mean, riches aren't money. I, I have some friends that are extremely rich that aren't happy at all. It's certainly not the road to, happiness yeah well there are even scientific studies proving that i'm sure you've seen those that that you know money improves people's happiness up to a certain level which is basically you know when you've got your security needs covered and you don't have to worry anymore which isn't really that much and then you know everything on top of that actually doesn't help and in some cases actually hurts a little bit so yeah yeah well that's the idea of the world economic forum you will be you will own nothing and you will be happy. Wait a minute. It's, it's the, but the cutoff isn't nothing. The cutoff is, is like enough to cover your expenses. <laughs> yeah, but, but you will be happy because you will be given what you need and that's it. You know, you'll yeah. get your insect protein and your injections and your uh, headset that you can see, 
see the metaverse in and that wow. uh, and drugs of course they'll give you drugs to make you happy so uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds like uh, Yuval Harari and, and uh, Klaus exactly. Schwab have, have really got a future here for us. Um, well, I, I hope uh, that one doesn't come true, and I, I hope the uh, community-supported agriculture, gardening, and local community currencies, a resilient network of many different kinds of currencies and many different kinds of people, the Muslims who don't like the interest, and maybe some, some uh, reformed uh, Western societies that have public currency like you advocate, I think a, a resilient web of diversity. Uh, we all love diversity, right? Well, that's in many ways, in many senses, that's the best way to go. But I think we've hit the end of the show. Uh, so thank you so okay. much, Ellen Brown. I love talking with you. Thank yeah, you. great talking to you. Okay, keep up the great work and God bless. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye. That's Ellen Brown. I'm Kevin Barrett, wishing everybody happy Eid. And I'll be back in the next hour with Henry Herskovitz, who looks like he's beaten the Jewish power lobby in court. Is that possible? (laughs) Stick around and find out.